0: What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about the infamous Sky Pirate, D.B. Cooper. On the 24th of November 1971, an anonymous man skydived out the back of a passenger plane with 200000 bucks in his back pocket, and he was never caught, and to this day, no one knows what happened to him it is uh, an incredible story it's one of the greatest unsolved mysteries in uh, in recent years and uh, we're going to get across it right here and right now so as i say it begins the story begins in uh, in 1971 specifically on wednesday the 24th of november this is just before uh, thanksgiving in the united states and uh, a bloke, right, this bloke, he walks in. He walks into the airport in Portland, in Oregon, and uh, he's just carrying a briefcase with him, and he buys a one-way ticket from Portland to Seattle down in Washington, up in Washington, down in Washington? Is Washington further, Washington's further north than, than Portland? I guess it doesn't, I mean, north is just a concept we made up, so up, down, left, right, sideways, backwards, who cares? Anyway, he's flying from Portland to Oregon, that's the takeaway, that's the headline, that's what we're focusing on here. And he buys, uh, he buys this ticket with an airline called Northwest Orient, right, so uh, an airline that that has three of the cardinal directions in it. It's got north and it's got west, and then apparently apparently orient as well. The only direction they don't fly is south. Anyway, he jumps on the plane. And uh, he sticks a Dartney's helmet. He's munching on it away on a durian because, of course, in those days you could uh, you could smoke on a plane. So he's loving it. He lights up a desk stick and he's having a great time. And then he orders himself a bevvy as well from the from the uh, the in flight uh, the cabin attendant. There he uh, gets himself a bourbon and soda. Right now the plane it's a Boeing seven twenty seven and it takes off on time at uh, at ten to three, so at two fifty p.m up and away, uh, wheels up, I believe they say in the uh, in the airline. I don't, actually don't know that for a fact. I, most of my knowledge of the, the airline industry is based on watching Air Force Proud's videos on YouTube. So I'm very ready to be wrong about that. Anyway, um, the flight attendant, her name is Florence Schaffner, right? Now she's strapped down for takeoff near him. Obviously, you know, they they sit down on those little uh, those little jump seats, whatever else, and get strapped in. So she's doing that. And while she sat waiting, or during the takeoff, he hands her a note. Right. So this bloke, um, he gave his he gave his name. Actually, we don't know his real name. He gave his name as Dan Cooper when he bought the uh, the airline ticket. He's a very very well dressed, bloke, Good looking fella, wearing a dark suit. He's got a tie. He's got a little little tie pin on. So you know you know this bloke. He he, he ain't playing. We know that. Anyway, he hands uh, Schaffner this note. Now she doesn't even look at it. She doesn't even look at it because she assumes that this bloke's been a bit of a sleazy bastard, to be honest. She assumes that, you know, it's his number or an invitation out to dinner and drinks, whatever else. So she's like, look, mate, I'm not, I'm not interested in that. I'm not, yeah. No, you've got you this got no, chance, mate. you got no chance at all here. Um, you know, she's not about it. Anyway, she, he insists that she reads it, right? So she does. Sure enough, he, he whispers that he's got a, a a bomb on the plane, and that she should read the note if it's uh, you know if it's if she knows what's good for it. And so she goes, oh geez, all right, this bloke's not mucking around. And so she she opens up the uh, the note and uh, and reads that it has you know the instructions that are that are contained inside it. Sure enough, he is threatening to uh, to blow up the plane with a bomb unless they uh, comply with his demands. So Schaffner sits down next to him, and uh, and he a- a- actually asks to lo- imagine. Look at this, what are you? fairly bloody gutsy move from this chick here. So you know, this bloke, He said, "Oh, I've got a bomb." She's like, "I don't believe you. I want to see it, mate." So so she sits down next to him. And uh, he opens up the briefcase, and sure enough, inside inside this inside this briefcase, there are eight red cylinders, and connected, they're all connected with wires. I presume the you know curly wires, just like it's something out of Looney Tunes. You know, geez, it sounds ridiculous, but apparently that's that's how it goes. Anyway, Cooper, if that's his real name, we're just going to call him Cooper. Cooper turns through and says, "Listen, mate, I want two hundred bucks. Two hundred. Sorry, excuse me. I'll start that again. Two hundred. Not enough. I want two hundred thousand bucks. I want two hundred thousand bucks in cash, quick, smart. Um, and let's." Take a quick break here. To, it is important to remember: two hundred thousand dollars in nineteen seventy-one is worth almost one point two million dollars today. This is all American dollars, by the way. One point two million bucks. So you know, this is this is not peanuts that he's asking for. And in in addition to that, he says, "I want four parachutes, and I want for the airplane to be refueled as soon as we land in Seattle." So he wants his money, he wants his parachutes, and he wants the the plane to be refueled the moment that it touches down uh, in Washington. So. She goes off to the pilot, Shaffner. she gets up and goes off to the pilot uh, to, uh, to, you know, to explain the situation, obviously not wanting to cause a panic amongst the rest of the passengers, want to keep them calm. And uh, then anyway, so she has a chat with the pilot, comes back. Anyway, this bloke, do you know what he's doing? He's popped sunglasses on. He's like bloody Samuel L. Jackson in a Poker Stars commercial. He's popped his sunglasses on. He's too cool for school, this bloke. And... um, the pilot now obviously has to make a decision about what's going to happen. This pilot, his name is William Scott, and he gets in touch with the airport in Seattle, uh, and they obviously inform the cops, the authorities, and and everything else like that. And everyone everyone else as well who's inclu- included in this uh, is the the boss of Northwest Orient. His name is Donald Nyrop, which to be honest sounds like a made up name, but you know that's apparently that's that's his name there. So, Mr. Nyrop he orders his employees to cooperate with the hijack. He doesn't want to put any any uh, lives at risk here. And uh, obviously the FBI are, are on the case straight away. So they go around to different banks, the FBI, and they uh, they go around to different banks in Seattle and get the, the actually they actually get this cash together. They they get together the 200,000 uh, 200, bucks at, at a very short notice, and they photograph every single note that they that they're planning to uh, you know to to deliver to this hijacker. They take a photo of every single one, so they've got all the serial numbers, the way that they look, the years that they were printed, all that sort of uh, all that sort of stuff is is going into the archives. Now the passengers on board, they they're not told what's going on obviously not wanting to create a panic they're told that there's a minor tef- technical difficulty uh as the plane uh, goes in circles essentially for hours and hours two hours it is going in a holding pattern above seattle airport um because and the flight was only actually supposed to be half an hour it's not such a long flight between uh between portland and uh, and seattle but uh, they're stuck up there because again of this minor technical difficulty so the next time <laughs> the next time you get told that when you're on a plane well maybe you should uh, you should be crapping your dacks because who knows what's going on anyway Schaffner, she's on hijack duty. She's on hijacker watch. So she hangs out with Cooper, and apparently he's actually quite chatty. He, you know, he points out stuff down below. He's looking at you know local landmarks, whatever else uh, through the window, and he's generally super chilled out, super cruisy, and uh, and being a been a pretty good bloke. He actually even tries to tip Schaffner after ordering a second bourbon. But again, she's not about that. Not interested in his money. Not interested in his number. Nothing like that. Get out of town. You know, not, you're a dirty rat bag. You're trying to hijack the plane. Don't want your money. Take it. You know, stick it right up your bum. Anyway. The flight finally lands when the FBI have got everything together at 5.24 p.m. 5.24, so there's no bloody Ryanair fanfare, this time when the plane lands two hours delayed. Anyway... Cooper pe- tells the pilot to park her up on the tarmac where it was isolated and well lit. So he's uh, not pulling all the way to the terminal building, just going to park her up on the tarmac there like that. Um, a Northwest Orient bloke named Al Lee brings out the cash and the parachutes, just as he demanded, and three fueling tr- trucks are being used to fill the train, uh, the, the train, the plane, sure, whoops, all right, the tra- <laughs> I, okay, nearly said train again, the plane, the big flying metal cigar, uh, as full as a gook. So, trying to get it to, obviously, you know, nice and refit. Don't want any, don't want any funny business. They, they just want they, they want to fulfil this uh, this hijackers' demands. What you know, to make sure everyone's going to be safe. Anyway, Cooper then after this all happens, Cooper then goes. He lets everyone exit. He lets everyone get off the plane, except for some of the crew who he then chats with and tells them what you know what the plan's. He says, "All right, fellas, get your heads together. I'll let you know what's going to happen here." Cooper wants them to fly all the way down to Mexico City. At the slowest possible speed and the lowest possible altitude, so he's wanting to fly low and very slow all the way down to Mexico City. The co-pilot William Ratichak, he says there's no way we've got enough fuel to get all the way there, especially at that speed. Um, even after you know we would have to basically make another refueling stop to do that, and so they they actually agree to do this in in Reno in Nevada, which. It, actually extremely mildly interesting this is a very very mild little mildly interesting fact about rena nevada it is further west than la despite being in nevada and la being in california nevada is actually further west than los angeles i don't know if that's of any interest to you but now you know it and hopefully you won't forget it it will be one of those things that just lodges so you know you can delete old spice girls lyrics out of your brain and, and replace it with that anyway cooper tells them to take off with the back staircase open. Now, this is a very odd request um, for you know to make because obviously the, the pilots they're not happy about this at all. Um, they're saying it's not possible. Uh, the they can't open. They can't you know imagine taking a uh, taking off in a plane with the with a staircase open. In this case, the because it's a seven twenty seven, the the air, the staircase is at right at the back, right at the arse end of the plane. So you'd be coming right out of the back of it if you were, if you were, you know walk down the stairs there. Um, but uh, the pilots are just like we can't do it. We actually we can't do it. It's not safe. We'll crash. We'll Will burn and die. And Cooper, he doesn't argue. He's like, all right, you know, you you know your eggs. We're not going to do it. That's fine. Uh, he says, I'll just open it myself. Don't even worry about it. You know, I'll, I'll take care of it. So, at seven forty p.m., so it's been sat there for a while now, but they're ready to go again. Seven forty, the plane is back in the air, and this time on it is just Cooper and four of the crew. There's Scott and Rattichak, the captain, the co-pilot and pilot, um, and then the a flight engineer Anderson. And the flight attendant, uh, Mucklow. Now, Mucklow, obviously Schaffner, she got off. She didn't have to uh, stick around there. There's a new flight attendant, Mucklow. And uh, Cooper actually says to her, uh, "Bugger off, mate. You head up into the cockpit, right? As soon as the as soon as we're in there, you head up into the cockpit and lock the door there. And because uh, I'm not interested in, uh, in you being in the cabin while I'm, you know, taking care of things uh, down here. So, sure enough, Mucklow goes off. And uh, this leaves Cooper alone there in in the cabin by himself. And about 20 minutes later, obviously we don't know exactly what Cooper did, but about 20 minutes later, the four people in the cockpit, they report a warning light flashing to say that the back staircase has been lowered. So they know that the back door has been opened and the staircase has been lowered in midair, let's not forget. Now, obviously, you can figure out what's what's going on, uh, you know, back at the tail end of the plane. And at 8.13pm, there's a slight lift at the back of the... The, uh, of the plane's tail as as cooper presumably chucks himself out of the of the plane with the cash strapped to him now two hours later the plane they, they don't e- exit the cockpit because again they don't want any anything to go wrong so they don't leave the cockpit for the entire flight two hours later the plane lands in reno uh safely they've uh, stayed in the cockpit for the entire duration of the flight and armed cops they storm the plane as soon as it lands but sure enough Cooper's not there, he's buggered off and he's left behind his tie, the little tie pin and two of the parachutes everything else, the sunnies, the cash and the bomb all gone So after this bloke has chucked himself out of the plane with uh, you know, the, today's equivalent of over a million bucks in cash, the FBI, I tell you what, they get their asses into top gear straight away to try to sort all this rubbish out by investigating a, a fair few different avenues. It has to be said because they didn't have a lot to go on, but what they did have uh, you know, as leads, they took very seriously and, and, and sort of hunted down uh, as quickly as possible. The first thing they tried to do was find exactly where this bloke landed, and if he even survived skydiving out into uh, well, actually, I didn't mention this. Sorry, wasn't the most pleasant weather outside of the plane. Uh, Cooper jumped out into wind chill that was nearly sixty below, sixty degrees Celsius below zero. In you know, in a bloody dimmies and forges uh, suit, he's he's got a thin old bag of fruit on. Doesn't have a winter coat. Doesn't have his gloves or anything else like that. So he's going to be very, very uh, going to be a very chilly boy but they can't actually determine where he might have landed, whether he was dead or alive when he when he landed. They can't determine because of a few different reasons. There are a few things that sort of mess with their calculations here. Firstly... The flight path of the aeroplane was was sort of messed up by these strong winds, these winds that were blowing it all, here, there, and everywhere. Um, in addition to that, the flow, the slow flying speed, and the very poor visibility meant that the pilots had a very hard time uh, d- determining exactly where they were when uh, Cooper jumped out. So that's the first thing. And secondly, depending on how long Cooper waited before pulling the ripcord, he actually basically could, could have been anywhere because if he, obviously, you know, if for anyone who's played PUBG, you'll know. Very, very different story depending on when you uh you pull that old ripcord uh, you know, if you don't if you don't get it exactly right, you think you're heading to the military base and all of a sudden you're being you're being shot to death in Pachinki. So you know, you gotta be very careful about that. And because they didn't know when he pulled the ripcord, how far above the ground he was, how far he floated, how far the wind blew him, huge area that they had to search here for, you know, just any kind of clue because of course, as I say, they didn't know if he survived on if he survived it's not as if he would have set up a, a cabin in the, you know, in the Washingtonian woods to uh to to live there with you know, two hundred Two hundred thousand bucks as, as firewood. Anyway, so they they searched and searched and searched this whole area south of around Mount St Helens and near the Lewis River, which they decided were the most likely spots. But they didn't find a lick of evidence. They didn't find a, a single thing. Not they didn't find Cooper or any of the stuff that he had on. And they didn't they didn't find the parachute. So they they just absolutely came up stone cold blanksies there. In the spring of 1972, so about four or five months after this uh, whole thing happens, the FBI and a bunch of blokes from the army, they search again for five weeks, after the winter of course, they search again for five weeks but still couldn't find anything. So there are two massive searches organised that don't turn up a single goddamn thing. They actually even, if you believe this, they actually even used a submarine to search the bottom of a, of a nearby lake, like Merwin, and they still couldn't find anything. So they really didn't, uh, they did really went at it, uh, you know, like a, like a bullet a gate trying to find absolutely anything at all. The search effort was actually one of the biggest in the history of the United States, and uh, the fact that it was a total failure really didn't uh, get the ball rolling in a, in a particularly positive way. Anyway, secondly, uh, apart from the search efforts, they, they actually tried to, to track down the cash. This was the, the other thing that they tried. Well, they, a couple of other things, but this is one of the other things they tried to do. They tried to tra- tra- track down the cash. The FBI, they distribute the serial numbers. Remember, they took, took photos of all of the banknotes. So they distribute all the serial numbers of the banknotes that were given to Cooper, uh, and they kept an eye on casinos and banks and uh, other, other places that deal with you know huge amounts large amounts of cash money things like uh, uh you know greyhound tracks horse races that sort of thing anywhere where you know a, a large amount of money is less a large amount of cash is less likely to raise eyebrows the the, the FBI are keeping a close watch on all that sort of thing to see if any of the uh, the serial numbers pop up now nothing ever turns up a few people bring in you know one or two notes here or there with similar serial numbers, but none of the original money is, is is found. It's incredible. It's like it just disappears entirely. It's never found, never spent, and never turns up. It's quite amazing. Um, the In addition to, obviously, the FBI's effort, Northwest Orient actually offered a reward of 15% for the return of the cash. But uh, they've actually got nothing to worry about, you know. As sort of a princely sum as you think that is, they've actually got nothing to worry about because um, the insurer they're in, they're obviously insured for this sort of thing, and the insurer pays back uh, hundred and eighty thousand dollars of the two hundred thousand that is stolen. So you know they're golden. Don't even worry about that. Now the third thing that the uh, the authorities do is they chase up a bu- chase up a bunch of suspects that they have, uh, but none of these ever eventuate into uh, into anything much at all. Now. One of the reasons I want to talk about the one of the reasons we call this bloke DB Cooper rather than Dan Cooper, which was obviously the name that he gave when he checked in, Uh, it's because the first guy that was interviewed by the FBI, his name was DB Cooper. So obviously, you know, a a little bit of a similarity there. Um, And some absolute idiot journalist, he, he, you know, he cocks it up beyond belief here. And when reporting on the issue. Uh, the whole, you know, the whole incident. He actually reports the the suspect's name as being officially D.B. Cooper, so that's why that name kind of stuck rather than Dan Cooper. But they interviewed this D.B. Cooper, and no, nothing comes to that interview. But that's what that's where the name com- comes from. They investigated other people as well, including one bloke whose uh, brother dobbed him in. His brother called him and said, "Listen, I think um, I think my 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 brother's actually done this." Uh, because this is actually kind of getting pretty dark because his brother had. Um, uh, Murdered his entire family two weeks before the hijacking, and he had completely disappeared. And so, when his brother saw this news reporting, oh, I reckon it was that I reckon it was that Bassett brother of mine, and and they reported. You know, obviously, very sad tale there. But uh, that that one didn't sort of eventuate in anything either and quite interestingly actually uh, quite a number of people actually claim to be this db cooper fellow in later years so you know as as we move further and further away from the crime itself uh quite a number of people actually came forward said yep it's me you know i did it yep it's like at the end of uh the commuter how they're all saying that they are what's the name man that film was so bad i can't even remember the name of the of the person they were hunting for kinder kenner can't I think it was a K. I don't remember. Don't watch it. If you're ever flying like with KLM and you're thinking, oh, yeah, I'll just pa- pass the time, watch a, watch a decent film, don't watch The Commuter. Even Liam Neeson can't save that film. Anyway, um, all these people, they come forward. Spartacus was probably just a much better example of everyone coming forward and claiming to be one person, to be honest. I don't know why I went for some C-grade action thriller flick that Liam Neeson you know, was foolish enough to, to get himself tricked into. Anyway, a bunch of people come forward. I'm D.B. Cooper, they say um lots of uh prison inmates do this after they've been convicted of other stuff they say oh also did the hijacking don't worry about that uh and also uh include this one's great a bloke who whose wife said that he talked about the hijacking in his sleep so that was enough to convince him to, to try to confess for it. anyway the best one however the best the best of the bunch here was actually a transsexual woman named barbara dayton who said that she had hijacked the plane in order to get back at the federal aviation administration for denying her a pilot's license. Now, that I would have to say, I mean, look, you know, I full power to this person for, for fighting for the rights of, uh, you know, of transsexual people around the world and, and, and good on her for getting off to a head start in 1971. I would say, however, for those anyone, you know, anyone who was attempting to right the wrongs of the world... In this situation, two wrongs don't make a right. Don't go and hijack a plane if you're unhappy about that sort of thing. It's not the best course of action. I don't know how to tell you. I don't want to tell you how to run your business, but I wouldn't suggest that as you sort of plan A. Anyway, she she actually later takes back the confession. Anyway, uh, when she, when she when she finds out that as a result of her confession, the FBI could still charge her for it. You know, so she comes out bragging, "Oh yeah, you know, did it to stick one up the FAA." And the FBI, "Oh, did you really? Okay, well, how about you know a lifetime bind bar? She's like, "I oh, actually didn't. Just uh, jokes, jokes. Didn't didn't mean it." So. Unfortunately for the FBI, there really isn't much, uh, you know, there, there's not much grass on the wicket when it comes to trying to, to find the culprit, the, the actual person who, who committed this crime here. The best lead they actually get, funnily enough, it comes almost 10 years later. So we, we're a decade on now uh, into the 80s. So 1980. Uh Uh, when some new evidence emerges, but it actually really messes up all the theories, the working theories that they'd had at the time. It's because of what... I'll tell you what happens. Basically, there's a kid, right? This kid, his name is Brian Ingram. He's eight years old at the time, in 1980. And he's mucking about uh, in the sand of the Columbia River. Uh, While he's doing this, he finds three packets of the cash that was given to Cooper still in their rubber bands, although, you know, pretty messed up after years in the wilderness, and, you know, particularly near a river. Uh, Although one of the... One of the one of the packets, is missing 10 of the notes. So it's, it's almost three full packets of, uh, of this money that was uh, that was given. Where they were found meant that Cooper wouldn't have landed in the area that had been searched back in 1972. So despite that they searched all this area, it was actually found outside the search zone. So if he'd landed in that area, they would have missed him uh, completely. Oops, sort of, <laughs> of a bit of a fumble, bit of a stumble on that one there, old FBI. But the problems that arose from this discovery were, were huge here. Because, first of all, why were there 10 notes missing? Why hadn't the rubber bands deteriorated further? Why did all three packets stay together after years of travelling, presumably near a river, maybe in the river at some point, how are they all stuck together? There were all these problems and obviously, you know, people in the grand tradition of Sherlock Holmes are trying to twist the theories to suit the facts rather than the facts to th- suit the theories, but the theories are getting bloody sillier and sillier until one bloke, su- have, check this out, one bloke suggests that it was a wild animal that had picked up the packets somewhere and then buried them where Ingram had found them. So there's some moose... In in the Northwest Pacific, there's like oh yeah, good couple, of, yeah, nice little nest egg for me. Here I'll go and bury, I'll go and bury that, and hope that some eight year old kid doesn't find it. So they really don't know what's going on here. The most ridiculous part here was uh, poor old Brian, poor old Boz, this little kid, right? He misses out on his treasure trove. It actually takes until 1986 for the money to be returned to him. So he finds his money, he hands it in like a good chap, and he doesn't get it back. So imagine this as a kid, you come across all this money, you think oh this is, I mean imagine how many bloody Mars bars and jelly beans you're going to get at the milk bar that night. But no, he hands it in does the right thing and then six years later he doesn't even get all the money returned to him it's ridiculous he only gets less than half of what was actually what he actually found right Uh and, and then the fbi also take 14 of the notes for evidence and the rest were was split between ingram and, and the insurance company so you know it's an absolute travesty here really really a, 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 an injustice of the of the of the bloody greatest magnitude you would say anyway actually so, you know i I'm hesitant to say it's a huge injustice because Brian, Brian Inger actually, he did all right out of it. So he managed, he managed to sell fifteen of the notes for thirty-seven thousand uh, dollars later on. So, you know, he's selling twenty-dollar notes for you know, a, a grand total. Of, he's selling fifteen of them. For thirty-seven thousand bucks, so he actually did too bad at it. So yeah, don't complain, Brian. You actually did all right. No other, uh, there were no other major leads. Uh, even even since that time, all the way through to today in twenty eighteen, there there haven't been there hasn't been a single a um, uh, single fresh piece of evidence to suggest that anything any developments have been made here. Um, people have recorded fingerprints and DNA evidence. Uh, and in January uh, last year, in January, January 2017, actually, a bunch of these bloody nerdy chemists they announced that uh, they announced that Cooper's tie had traces of cerium and strontium sulphide in it. So good to know, I guess. Great that you know they're still on the case and, and cra- trying to crack it. You know that if these critical breakthroughs are still being made. Anyway, ultimately today we still don't know we hardly know anything about db cooper we don't know who he is we don't know where he came from how old he is what he's doing nothing No. nothing about his background nothing about where he is now uh, I, I think randall munro the author of xkcd once suggested that he may it may actually be tommy wise that may actually explain where he got all the money to fund you know the room and all the other crazy stuff that he did but um what we do know about D.B. Cooper is he oh geez, he's bloody clever. He was a clever cookie, I'll tell you this one. He planned this crime perfectly. So first of all, he picked the day before Thanksgiving weekend as he knew that people would be busy with family stuff all weekend. It means it means that the, there'd be extra days before the cops were back behind behind their desks to investigate, right? So that's number one. Um, and Oh, sorry, it also gave him uh, a bunch of extra time to get out of the area and uh, maybe go back to work on Monday, seeing as he's got the old four-day weekend, you know, without being uh, without being missed um he also chose to uh, a, a flight that was on a 727 because it was the model of aeroplane that had a rear stairway, which is the most suitable for skydiving. Obviously jumping out the side of a plane, very, very dangerous uh, compared to jumping out the back of it, especially when you've got big turbines or or propellers or jet engines or whatever's going on with these ones. Um, And on top of that, he asked for four parachutes to make the authorities think that he was going to force someone to jump out with him. So he actually, actually, by asking for four, obviously you have one and then a backup, so you only need two per person. By asking for four, he planted in their minds the idea that he was actually going to take someone with him and, and continue to hold them hostage um, but interestingly with the parachutes he actually wasn't that smart with them because he he picked the worst parachutes that had been included um uh, and he also incl- he picked a dummy chute that was clearly marked dummy it was included as a mistake and he 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 clearly he sorry he picked that despite it being clearly marked he picked that as his as his backup so he obviously either very very confident or very very foolish indeed the fbi later said that they'd actually given him this dummy parachute by mistake, but you know, who knows. Anyway. Um in any case, in any case, this bloke, he got away with it. Absolutely got away with it one way or another, and today it remains if you check this out. It remains the only unsolved case of air piracy in history. It is the only case of this sort of crime happening like this and never being solved and never being resolved. It is still to this day a mystery what happened. Now, as a result, I have to say, there is a there is a particularly, there's there's a sort of a nasty twist in the tail here that uh, we can all blame D.B. Cooper for here because as a result of this crime, airport security started to get uh, started to get jacked up enormously because after this, there were a bunch of copycat hijackings. There were 31 hijackings the next year in 1972 in the United States and at this point, the FAA is like, had, I've had enough of this and it made the FAA they mandate uh, bag searches in 1973, so that was when it all kicked off. You know, you, you couldn't just take whatever luggage you wanted onto a plane anymore. Uh, you had to have your, your your bag searched or bag checked before you went on. Now, also, they changed the design of the 20 uh, the, the 727 as a result to make it impossible to open the rear stairs from from outside the cockpit. A smart move, I would say. I don't know why you'd ever need to open the. Uh, the stairs without having access to the cockpit, um, and all the cockpit doors. This is when they had peepholes installed in them, so uh, you could, if you were in the cockpit, you could see, you could still see it out to the cabin uh, to check what was uh, what was going on. But anyway, no matter all of this other stuff that we've mentioned, at the end of the day, DB Cooper, the absolute perfect crime, two hundred thousand bucks in his back pocket, jumping out of a plane, laughing himself to death, having a great time, getting away with it, the perfect crime. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the air pirate, D.B. Cooper, and how he sailed to freedom with 200,000... Well, actually, not really sailed, did he? Parachuted to freedom is is a better way of, uh, of putting that one there. Anyway, he did that. A couple of uh, little things to uh, leave you with before we close out the show. Of course, uh, I don't know if I mentioned this. We've, I've got a Twitter account. We've got uh, half our history is on Twitter. You can jump onto it, and search half house history, and you will find the account there. And I tend to just—I try to tweet every day, just just little things that I come across in my research and in the reading that I'm doing, whatever else. So yeah, you'll find little little tidbits, all facts and, and that sort of stuff from uh, you know from the world of history, uh, history there. If you want to follow uh, follow the show, um, the other thing as well is I've set up a Patreon account. Now this is. I describe myself as an optimistic person, and I describe this as an optimistic move. I'm not expecting, you know, a deluge of gold to uh, to land in my lap here. But a couple of people have asked me about it, so I thought it was worth setting up there. Uh, the, the benefits are a little iffy at this stage. I'll see if I can iron them out a little bit to you know, make them a little bit more convincing. Well, we'll see anyway, it's a work in progress, but if you want to chuck me a buck or two per episode, geez, I bloody love it. And, uh, and uh, yeah, you can do that by, uh, by going to halfhusthistory.net and you can find all the links there to the, to the Twitter, to the Patreon, to old episodes, that sort of thing. Final thing, very exciting thing is I have got stickers to send to anyone who is interested in getting them. If you would like some stickers, I will send them your way absolutely free of charge. All you need to do is send me an email halfasthistory at gmail uh, with your address and I'll send them to you. Don't even worry about it. I'll, I'll cover the postage because of course, you know, all those Patreon dollars that will be coming in will be uh, more than sufficient for that. Um, there is nothing else I need to say. So that is that. Didn't really think about that sentence before I started it. So yep, needed a better run up. Anyway, leaving you this week as I do every week with uh, a thought that was posted on Reddit Reddit historian Jay Vulture had a question for us to think about this week, obviously we talked about the piloting skills of the of the of one of the pilots there, William um, I've forgotten his name already, doesn't matter um, the question posed by Jay Vulture you know, as we've been talking about skilled pilots why was it that kamikaze pilots, obviously you know some of the most skilled pilots you would presume in, in the Japanese Air Force, why did they fly their planes so badly?